All right, gentlemen, let's thank, uh, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for another night, and we ask that you would continue to keep our minds alert to what we're looking at, uh, considering it wisely and, and putting places, putting these things in the place they belong in our minds. In your Son's name, amen. Okay, the second, uh, the second topic in this seminar is, as you can see from the title, on hierarchies. Um, previous editions of, I was looking back through because something about uh, that Chris had said uh, yesterday, I couldn't remember what was in earlier editions. I was looking back through files and it goes all the way back to like 2003, it's almost 10 years uh, for the first uh, Mojo Oracle. Um, but I added just this year this section out of Lewis's That Hideous Strength, and I apologize for the misspelling of his name. Uh, typing too fast. Um, I wanted to read you this section. If you follow along with it, I won't have to try to change my voice to be a girl voice in one situation and a guy voice in the other. Um, as I mentioned before, if you haven't read the book, um, uh, one of the subplots of the book involves uh, the female lead, Jane Stedick, uh, visiting this Christian community at St. Anne's on the Hill and we covered how she had reacted in the preface to Ransom and, and the, the director of this group, this Christian group, and he comes across to her as Solomon, and her world is unmade. And a short way into the book, she has some conversations with him about her problems with her husband. And uh, I wanted to read through this extended section, there's a page and a little over. Um, and is that Tyler? Tyler, it is Tyler. He's now made famous, infamous rather, on the CD. That uh, is your stuff over there. Did you? Yeah. I hope it's there. Not at home. Um, and there's coffee if you want to grab a cup. Uh, I assume there's still coffee. Yeah. Um, this section. Um, covers or, or starts to engage the issue of hierarchy, and in the issue of hierarchy is the issue of inequality. We talked about how in the first lesson about um, once you realize what it takes to be a person, you realize that being a person can be done well or poorly. Um, and consequently, just like you'd say there are better tennis players than others, there are better people than others at being people at being a person. And, but then, then as you face society, which starts to reflect, uh, you might say, we, we, we put things in place, be it the military or bosses or, or uh, uh, artificial uh, uh, experiences with uh, hierarchies. Uh, but we also have some God-ordained hierarchies that exist. The king, the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Um, that's Ecclesiastes. Um, written by a king, of course. Um, the uh, 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 parents, uh, husbands, God, uh, to a small degree, uh, church leaders, not to a big a degree as some of these others, but there are hierarchies that come out of nature, there are hierarchies that come out of God's word, there are hierarchies that we create. But the idea of a hierarchy is, um, well, we'll get to that in a minute, but I wanted to read you this section. She's trying to explain why her relationship to her husband 
isn't good. But is it really necessary, she began. I don't think I look on marriage quite as you do. It seems to me extraordinary that everything should hang on what Mark says about something he doesn't understand. Child, said the director, it is not a question of how you and I look on marriage, but how my masters look on it. He's referring, of course, to the Oyarsa of the planets and to God himself. Someone, she says, someone say, said that they were very old-fashioned, but that was a joke. They are not old-fashioned, but they are very, very old. They would never think of finding out first whether Mark or, and I believed in their ideas of marriage. Well, no, said the director with a curious smile. No, quite definitely they wouldn't think of doing that. And would it make no difference to them what a marriage was actually like, whether it was a success, whether the woman loved her husband? Jane had not exactly intended to say this, much less say it in the cheaply pathetic tone which it now seemed to her she had used. Hating herself and fearing the director's silence, she added, but I suppose you will say I oughtn't have told you that. My dear child, said the director, you have been telling me that ever since your husband was mentioned. Does it make no difference? I suppose, said the director, we depend on how he lost your love. Jane was silent. Though she could not tell the director the truth, and indeed did not know it herself, yet when she tried to explore her inarticulate grievance against Mark, a novel sense of her own injustice and even pity for her husband arose in her mind, and her heart sank. For now it seemed to her that this conversation, to which she had vaguely looked for some sort of deliverance from all problems, was in fact involving her in new ones. It was not his fault, she said at last. I suppose our marriage was just a mistake. The director said nothing. What would you, what would the people you are talking of say about a case like that? I will tell you if you really want to know, said the director. Please, said Jane reluctantly. They would say, he answered, that you do not fail at obedience through lack of love, but of lost love because you never attempted obedience. Something in Jane that would normally have reacted to such a remark with anger or laughter was banished to a remote distance where she could still, but only just, hear its voice. By the fact that the word obedience, but certainly not obedience to Mark, came over her in that room and in that presence, like a strange oriental perfume, perilous, seductive, and ambiguous. Stop it, said the director sharply. Jane stared at him open-mouthed. There were a few moments of silence during which the exotic fragrance faded away. You were saying, my dear, resumed the director, I thought love meant equality, she said, and free companionship. Ah, equality, said the director. We must talk of that some other time. Yes, we must all be guarded by equal rights from one another's greed, because we are fallen, just as we must all wear clothes for the same reason. But the naked body should be there underneath the clothes, ripening for the day when we shall need them no longer. Equality is not the deepest thing, you know. I always thought that's just what it was. I thought it was in their souls that people were equal. You are mistaken, he said gravely. That is the last place where they are equal. Equality before the law, equality of income, that is all very well. Equality guards life. It doesn't make it. It is medicine, not food. You might as well try to warm yourself with a blue book. But surely in marriage, worse and worse, said the director, courtship knows nothing of it, nor does fruition. What has free companionship to do with that? Those who are enjoying something or suffering something together are companions. Those who enjoy or suffer one another are not. 
Do you not know how bashful friendship is? Friends, comrades, do not look at each other. Friendship would be ashamed. I thought, said Jane, and stopped. I see, said the director. It is not your fault. They never warned you. No one has ever told you that obedience, humility, is an erotic necessity. You are putting equality just where it ought not to be. That's a pretty heavy-handed slap to notions of equality that we face. And he's basically saying, I put this at the beginning because I wanted to set it like I, I mentioned to you before. I want to take these more um, uh, philosophic underpinnings of what it is to be a Christian man and a quality get for any Christian woman uh, in terms of what it does, what each of these ideas does to the idea of courtship um, here and sex. Fruition means sex. Um, he's saying equality doesn't belong there. You're not free companions with your spouse. You're not friends stand beside each other and look out at the world. They don't look at each other. It's, it's, that's, uh, that's icky. Friends looking at each other. We suffer and, what does it say? We enjoy and suffer each other when it's relationships. When friends are together, they enjoy or suffer the outside thing, something that interests them. But he lets them know that they're not equal in souls, they're not equal in, in the structure of things, and he blames her lack of love on the fact she never attempted obedience. Because, as he says, obedience, humility, is an erotic necessity. Well, there's a problem that goes with that. We just don't believe that anymore. You know, we don't... We, um, we have biblical ideas. If we're in a Christian church and anybody reads the Bible, we run across those things about submit yourself to the governing authorities. It talks about wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all joy and, you know, yeah. And women automatically, just even if they're Christian women, their foot goes back behind them and they brace. Like it's going to be, I'm going to be made into a doormat. I don't want to be made into a doormat. This is America, we're all equal here. <clears throat> but we want, we, but we, we're conservative Christians. We want these things to occur in our lives. We want our children to reverence us. We want our wives to reverence us. And... Uh, we, we fail to realize that there is this blind spot that, as, Luke, as uh, Ransom says there at the end, the director, it is not your fault they never warned you. No one has ever told you. The blind spot, the blind spot is the missing sense of hierarchy, the missing sense of level, that the, the world is a vertical world, not a horizontal world. Um, and when we have, for the last 250, 300 years, since the Enlightenment, drank with our mother's milk the notion of social equality, but what Ransom says is needful the laws, right? Equality before the law. We need equal treatment by the judges so that we don't abuse each other. Because, but that's an artificial thing that we put on top of inequality so that justice can continue to be done. But that's not, as he says, equality is not the deepest thing. 
And we seem to think it is. And so we've got on one hand the need for biblical lives, wives submitting to their husbands and citizens submitting to the emperor and all sorts of other things that we, we find our own self bridling at. We find the women we marry bridling at. You don't even want to bring up the subject. My father brought it up with my mother before they were engaged. He asked her what she thought of Ephesians 5. And my mother was a tough hombre, older than he was by eight years, a missionary in Japan. And she said, I believe it wholeheartedly. I just haven't found a man yet I'm willing to submit to. And he said to himself at that point, I'm on. <laughs> and he proved he was. <clears throat> But the, uh, we all find ourselves, because of the training of the society. Now, oddly enough, it's such a recent phenomenon in world history terms. If you have a biblical notion, I don't know which of you of the antiquity of man is, I'm a 6,000 year guy. 6,000 years, 300 of which people have believed in equality. And it has become, in part of that 300 years, it's only been in recent, probably since maybe the 50s, since it really started to be featured in the way families were structured and kids calling their parents by their first name and women not taking their husband's last name and, and hyphenating it and, and doing all sorts of disrespectful times to their husbands. So it's really just grown in the last bit of lifetime. I've seen it happen in my own lifetime. And what's weird, like I said, human history for 6,000 years prior wasn't. Lewis has this section in his preface to Paradise Lost, <clears throat> and this is uh, in his chapter in Preface to Paradise Lost called Hierarchies. This thought is not peculiar to Milton. It belongs to the ancient Orthodox tradition of Europe European ethics from Aristotle to Johnson himself, that's Samuel Johnson, 1700s. And a failure to understand it entails a false criticism not only of Paradise Lost, but of nearly all literature before the Revolutionary Period. It may be called the hierarchical conception. According to this conception, degrees of value are objectively present in the universe. Everything except God has some natural superior. Everything except unformed matter has some natural inferior. The goodness, happiness, and dignity of every being consists in obeying its natural superior and ruling its natural inferiors. When it fails in either part of this twofold task, we have disease or monstrosity in the scheme of things until the peccant being is either destroyed or corrected. One or the other will certainly be, for by stepping out of its place in the system, whether it step up like a rebellious angel or down like an luxurious husband, it has made the very nature of things its enemy. It cannot succeed. That is how the world viewed everything from the creation down to the 1700s. Everyone. Now, sure, you had sin, you had destruction, you had bad marriages, but not because of this. <laughs> and not because of the missing concept. People would sin against the standards of God regarding marriage or in relationships. But uh, I, there would be abusive husbands or luxurious husbands. There would be, there would be up, uppity wives. Um, you get that back in Shakespeare with the taming of the shrew. It, it, sure, sure, it still happened. But right now we have normal people 
like yourselves, with normal educations, in normal churches, with the goal of this sort of relationship and state of order and government in their homes desired, and nobody seems to be able to lay their hands on why it isn't working. Primarily, I mean, it affects how uh, it affects how uh, husbands and wives relate, but it is more evident in how kids are raised. Watching what happens to the children. I, matter of fact, I, I originally wrote this essay, um, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that. I was asked to speak at an education conference in Virginia uh, on the concept of discipline uh, for the classroom. Uh, and so I spoke on this regarding what does hierarchy do? The conception of hierarchy infused into the situation. How does it discipline automatically a situation? It won't, won't remove rebellion, but it will discipline those who, who's, who are just operating according to how they view the world and find themselves at odds with their overlords. Solomon here, out of Ecclesiastes, there's an evil I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit on a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on foot like slaves. That's 1000 BC. People could still invert things. People could still destroy the hierarchy, destroy what is what ought to be. But the Christian not only is trying to um, live according to the plan laid out in Ephesians 5 in his relationships. If you're looking for a girl, do you forgo, just go looking for the most docile, homeschooled, you know, unrebellious type girl just because you know I don't want to fight this battle. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to find somebody who's completely compliant. But a lot of times we're not looking for We're looking for someone with some pizzazz, some, some sparkle, some... Mm -hmm some strength, and you know, but you're inviting in, very possibly, some contention with that sparkle. And it doesn't sparkle quite so much. Now, this, uh, this notion has to be added to the very nature of government. The nature of government, simplified, I, I'm a might-makes-right sort of person. In other words, the person who's got the club gets to make the rules about <laughs> what's going on. If, he's got, if I have a bunch of bodyguards here, and I say, okay, guys, give me some push-ups. You guys say no, and my bodyguards take one step forward, you know, pull out some brass knuckles. You're down on the floor, you know, doing push-ups. I, I can govern the situation if I have enough force. Force exists, and that's not always a, a brutal force, but, but the idea that force governs is because it can reward the obedient and punish the disobedient. That's the nature of government. Okay? But the philosophy that's behind that action changes, you might say, the aroma of the situation. We can't imagine having a king. Most people had kings in the history of the world. We can't imagine having kings. We can't imagine the majesty. We can't imagine the height. We can't imagine really thinking these are, these are demigods. We can't imagine them. The, uh, this thing being added makes the target goals, the biblical target goals of what you might want in a marriage, available to you without the degree of heartache, the degree of contention that you 
um, might otherwise run into. Um, some people think that that the problems with the age is because of you know all that happened at Woodstock or all that happened the Beatles. So it was the Beatles and the, the British invasion of uh, ro that rock and roll. That's what set the kids against their parents. Now it was Thomas Jefferson. His name be blotted out. Uh, people like Thomas Jefferson, who were Lockean in their thoughts, they were teaching you that independence is the virtue, is the goddess. Independence is the goddess, and equality is the ground. We even have Hillary Clinton a few years back arguing for the rights of children, equal rights to children. You have PETA members arguing for equal rights for bunnies. They have lawyers that represent animals because they can't speak for themselves. And you say, well, this is just loony. No, it's the Enlightenment. Yeah, that's, it's, it's not that light, but it's, uh, the, the idea is that we created a nation where we, for the sake of a, a, a type of governmental structure, which I like, I like a representative democracy, I like having a vote, I like having the freedoms that are there. But because of futility, everything we do, as it says in Ecclesiastes, if you dig a hole, you will fall into it. This is the hole our freedom from England fell into. This is the hole that us having a say in our rulers fell into. We could not stop Disney from making films about how stupid fathers are. And it's amazing how many Disney films, it's the father, the big idiot, in the biggest wandering lummox who can't get anything right. It's always the kids, usually the littlest one is the most wise, and then working your way up to the teenager. And then finally, mother might be half wise, she's only half retarded. And then finally the father, he's just walking into walls. I mean, he's not able to do anything. He's ruining everything. He's reacting like an adult to everything. That's all the result of the Enlightenment. Now, it's a... Uh, it can't be, uh, it, it's, it's simplifying, you know, admittedly, there's an awful lot of things going on in the culture. This is not the only thing. Um, when, I, when I came across this notion, um, I had had some friends who were having trouble with their child rearing. They had some feisty young boys, and uh, they said, we're doing exactly what you taught us about raising kids. We're disciplining them, we're spanking them. And, um, and my natural thought was, well, certainly not hard enough or frequent enough. And then there was the advice I would give, okay, have you swung through the butt? Have you, <laughs> have you your head down? Um, what's the, what, is your technique right? Because I've seen some women spank their kids and it's like, oh, you know, the kid just looks at their mom like, you insulted me. I deserve better than that. So, I thought it was they weren't doing the discipline, the government aspect, correctly. Then I visited them, and they were spanking their kids 24-7. Far more, far more rigorously, far more painfully than I ever did with my kids. What's wrong with the picture? I looked at the parents. The problem was the parents weren't adults. When, when, one of the things, when God disciplines you, it says here in Hebrews 12, 9, 
Besides this, we have had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Gives that nice uh, correlation between our discipline of our children and our being disciplined by God. We are his children. And it's easier to spot when you look at it with God. Because God chastises the sons whom he loves. It comes out of that same passage, that phrase. Um, we're not only dealing with the pain of God's punishment. We're dealing with the presence of God in our punishment. Matter of fact, since the pain of our punishment, is a lot of it's psychological. A lot of it is, you know, guilt and, and being out of fellowship with him and, and losing the joy of our salvation. Whatever those things are, th th those are things we're carrying around. We feel this weight on us. It's not like the spanking. Because if God spanked you, you know, this big hickory switch comes down from heaven and just catches you across the back of the knees, it would sting, probably. It'd probably sting a lot. Really what disciplines us is us knowing where that came from. It came from the Most High God. And we not just had a, a, a painful reaction to our disobedience, we, we felt a humiliation, a putting in our place a sense of God up above us. There was a direction from which the discipline came. Um, these parents didn't conceive of themselves as adults because also in my generation, I, I will take the blame for that, not personally, all of it, but my generation, um, we decided that the best time in life was 18. We all miss it. You don't want to go to reunions, class reunions of people from my lifetime. You know, it's ugly. Everybody trying to still, we're in our 50s, still trying to be 18, still trying to relate, still trying to be young and vigorous and vibrant and riding Harley Davidsons and, and, and being just like we were when we were adventurous and young, our glory days. Nobody wants to give up being a child. The old adage, which I'll mention later, of men want to be boys and women want to be bitches. That's, those are the, the and, and more so for this generation and your generation as well, um, because nobody really thinks of adult, it's, we think, because of Walt Disney, that as you become an adult, you become a, a waste, a burden, a parasite, a fool. When originally adult meant you are now a better kind of human being than a child, a better kind. They are a lower kind. You are a higher kind of human being. When we don't have this, <clears throat> what does a child do? A child is picking up this philosophy osmotically. And it's not just I'm speaking to children, but it's also true with how relationships go. Um, I want to mention a quote, uh, one I want to use in a wedding someday if I can convince a woman to do it. Well, really, I have to convince the woman's mother because the woman's mother is the one who planned the wedding and she, she's not going to want this Bible verse. It, the Bible verse comes from uh, uh, Samuel where... Uh, David proposes to Abigail to become his wife. 
she, her husband just died, and it said she was a very good-looking woman with great understanding. And she keeps David from doing something wicked, killing her husband. After her husband is dead, David proposes to her, and she responds to his proposal this way. Your handmaid is but a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. That's how she responds to it. Beautiful woman with great understanding. We can't imagine what a joy that would be. To have a woman, you know, place herself like that with, her, with all of her understanding and all of her qualities and all of her, you know, great uh, aspects, she places herself in that situation. Um, if we don't, if the society is the only thing teaching the women and the only thing teaching the men, the men know what they want biblically, but they don't know what's missing in themselves to get what's biblical. The women just pick up the secular notions. I mean, I, I, I mentioned this at a church uh, that I'm in good fellowship with, and I think a lot of dear believers in it, had a men's conference a few years ago, the title of which was Mentoring Your Equal. That was how they spoke about leaving your wife. That was the title of the conference, Mentoring Your Equal. I nearly bit the carpet. I nearly uh, drove an ice pick into my thigh. I was, it was more than I could take. Now, they, were, they, they probably said a lot of good things. Men probably were benefited in many ways. But the title alone just gave me the pip. When we um, allow that brainwashing to exist, just to exist, without contrary statement, without contrary information, without thinking philosophically differently about the world. You do not have to think like the world teaches you to think. You don't have to have the premises that they give you. When they are accepted, your children look at you as just the bigger person around the house who, because they are bigger, they can hit you. That is it. And they can make you because they can hit you out of fear of punishment to do what they say. And that lasts until the kid's 14. And just about then, the kid starts to look at the little tick marks you put on the door of the kitchen, or how tall they're getting. And they're looking at their father, and they're looking at the tick mark. And they realize within a few short months, they'll be taller than their father. And they don't have to put up. And of course, as they, and they, and they start to get their own opinions and get their own sense of self, and they begin to realize and measure that they are equal to their parents. They are their parents' equals. And the whole society goes, yes, you are your parents' equals. But it's a Christian home, and so Dad's trying to get reverence out of his children. And so he turns up the heat. <laughs> well, you're going to be sass, boy, and, and more punishment. Now, Lewis has this great definition. And this is, if you can meditate on this some more in your own time, because it's a great analysis of government. This is from his um, Preface to Paradise Lost. Now, once the conception of hierarchy is fully grasped, we see that order can be destroyed in two ways. One, by ruling or obeying natural equals. That is, by tyranny or servility. By failing, too, to obey a natural superior or to rule a natural inferior. That is, by rebellion or remissness. And these, whether they are monstrosities of equal guilt or no, are equally monstrosities. Well, look at those four things. Tyranny, servility, 
rebellion or remissness. That says it all. Now the problem is, that that's just an analysis of all <laughs> authority systems. So what happens when an equal tries to rule you? They have to ramp up the punishment. Part of the problem with uh, spousal abuse is that husbands naturally think of themselves as authorities. Nobody, themselves included, believes that they are the natural authority. And they get into a situation they cannot resolve by logic and conversation. She's not going to do it. They don't know where to turn, so they punch her. It, it turns to tyranny. Fathers who don't understand how to relate to their kids and convince their kids, and they just hit them harder and harder and harder and harder. Tyranny comes when there's a, even when it's not actual equal ruling equal, but a perception of the parties that they are equals. The 14-year-old kid thinks his parents are tyrants because he thinks he's their equal. That's, that's why he thinks they're tyrants, and because we've let the society convince him of that. Wives will think their husbands are tyrants because their husband's trying to lead, and he gets more and more pugnacious about it, and she's not going along with it. So she, she either, and she has the possibility of, if I, if I do the bad thing to my equal, if I try to rule my equal, I become a tyrant. If I live according to that tyrannical rule, I become servile. And you find wives of, of tyrannical husbands being mousy little, stoop-shouldered, frightened women. And on the other side of the line, the failing to rule or the failing to obey, you either do that by rebellion. If I fail to obey, it's rebellion. And if I fail to rule, it's remiss. I have failed in a something that was handed to me that I as the father, I as the husband should have done and I didn't do. And, and Lewis is saying these are monstrosities, equally monstrosities. But whether or not, you know, this is not telling you what is high, what is low. This is telling you the presence of high and low. If it exists in the real world, we have a natural affinity towards that, because of the creation. Two, we have a biblical guide to set up our homes that way. And uh, all sorts of rewards are promised in that. And we're living in a culture where everyone is breathing a basic idea that makes that idea look like poison. What Lewis says here in the next section, a little bit down, further down the page. The greatest statement of the hierarchical conception in its double reference to civil and cosmic life is perhaps the speech of Ulysses in Shakespeare's Troilus. If you want to read the speech, it's there in the side column. <laughs> Put the whole thing in there. Its special importance lies in its clear statement of the alternatives to hierarchy. If you take degree away, each thing meets in mere repugnancy. Strength will be lore. Everything will include itself in power. In other words, the modern idea that we can choose between hierarchy and equality is, for Shakespeare's Ulysses, mere moonshine. The real alternative is tyranny. If you will not have authority, you will find yourself obeying brute force. 
because there will be government. It will not descend into some or the Occupy Wall Street crowd. They they don't they, they have consensus. They don't even vote on stuff. They just have a, a voice consensus. So we're all in agree. They want to have this this hug fest and smoke enough dope and maybe we'll be all on the same page by the time we're done. Anyone who's tried to run a utopia realizes how quickly it devolves to tyranny because you have to become, to govern anything, if people think they're equal, they need tyrants. Democracy was first introduced at Athens by Cleisthenes, and um, every so often, um, Athens and other city-states that tried democracy would, would um, realize this isn't working very well. We have to, the word tyrant comes in from the age of the tyrants when the democracies would invite a tyrant in. You know, uh, some of the tyrants, Hippias, uh, Pisistratus, some of the other tyrants out there, they invite them in because they knew to straighten this out, you've got to have a strong man come in, break a few heads, kick a few people out of town, be a tyrant. And they'd clean everything up, and then they'd then try to filter their way back to this fun-loving democracy eventually. But tyrants, if you don't have hierarchy inequality, you have hierarchy and tyranny. Because equality just starts to tear things up. Um, You have to remember <clears throat> that when there's confusion about the nature of things, when you don't realize that you are men, and not only are you men, you're now adult men, and adult men has a certain dignity to it, and an honor to it, and that realization, we, we of course, biblically, we realize this is what we want, this is what would be good in our marriage, this is what would be good in our child-rearing. Um, we have to realize that without changing the circumstance, not just of yourself, you know, this is not a... Changing this in you will have a certain degree of benefit, but you also got to change it in the woman you marry, or, or look for it in the woman you marry. Um, again, not to find a woman who has become servile, that's just the lazy man, that just means that the tyranny of his, her upbringing made a broken woman her, and she can't make a peep. She has to be on Valium or Prozac all the time because she's crushed. You don't want a crushed woman. You want a beautiful woman with great understanding who will bow the knee to you because you are her husband. But since that doesn't happen, the children and the wives think that this natural attempt at rule is tyranny just because they think you're the equal. They either are going to, they're either going to become servile or they're going to resist. They're going to become rebellious. What are you going to do? The uh, there's a problem. I have to admit there's a problem. And you have to, like any hole you dig, you'll fall into it. This hole you can fall into. It's a, uh, um, the natural thing, when I have spoken on 
I've seen it happen when I've just taught a Bible study on Ephesians 5, and I'll talk about a husband leading his home, and, and I get guys going home and being dicks about their wife, you know, being, you know, being all bossy and stuff. You know, do this for me, get my slippers. I mean, really, that kind of stupidity. That, that, that suddenly, because the idea of hierarchy comes upon us like heroin. We're already egotists, we men. We already think the world of ourselves. We, we stand around surveying our world. We, we challenge each other to anything from guttural noises to arm wrestling to football games to whatever it is. Horn to horn, stags in, the, in rut is what we are. And we measure ourselves by our... And so anything that comes along that says, hey, you guys, Jesus says, or the Apostle Paul says, you, you're, 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 the, you're in charge here. You're the boss man. Weak wits go to town with that. Now the problem is, with anything that is hierarchical, even true hierarchs, kings, arrogance is the problem. Arrogance is the sin that that infects this thing. Um, now, consequently, I would be remiss if I did not speak to why or how the hierarchical mind avoids the arrogance. Um, our Lord says, do unto others as you would be done by. That's a short one. Do unto others as you would have men do unto you. If you believe in a hierarchy, you want to have them submitting to you the way you submit to your God, or you submit to your boss, or you submit to your commanding officer, or you submit to your government. That's how you show your wife what submission's like, because you do unto others as you would be done by. You want someone to treat your lordship a certain way? you show them what a good citizen of your various worlds is going to be like. I've often told them, a lot of times, this is a harder sell for some, well, it's a different kind of sell for women. I tell them, what kind of obedience would you like out of your children? You know, you're, you're at home, alone with the kids, or there's 2.5 kids, and they're at that awful age, one of them's two, and one of them is five, and going on hell. And... Uh, um, and you're pregnant, and you're carrying this, and your husband never does anything, and so you're trying to control the kids, and you would just like to be able to say something to the kids, and they go take a nap, and they go, what? Joyfully and instantly, without any back chat, go take the nap. That's what you'd like. Well, you've just defined what kind of submission you give your husband. No back chat, instantly and joyfully. <clears throat> Because, and that's what we as men must do as well. If we would like to have the deference of our wife, your handmaid is but a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord, that, that, kind, of, um, um, that kind of reaction had better be coming out of you. When you see your overlords, when you deal with your overlords, they had better feel the honor of their dignity coming out of your mouth. Yes, O king, live forever. Yes, your majesty. Yes, my lord. Or is the navy, sir, yes, sir. They, they, turn, they train you to say, sir at the beginning, yes in the middle, and sir at the end. 
make sure you covered all the bases. Consent and honor on both sides. Bracket that puppy. And you, and you had better do it. You had better, oh, the, th the times the guys that would get caught not saluting somebody, boy, the, the, the military has a great way. It's a, it's, a it's, a, it's a relic of the Middle Ages. Um, but they, they, they could crush you for insubordination. You'd go to the brig. I've seen guys in the brig. I remember having my breakfast tray walking in the chow hall one day. Two Marines walk in, very big Marines. In between them, there's a guy in almost rags. He's a pea spray painted on his chest. He's in six inch ankle irons. And he's shuffling in with two Marines on either side. He's in the brig. And then in the military brig, it's breaking rocks. It's, it's, it's a throwback to the Spanish Inquisition. I don't know what it's, it's an awful thing. But they would, if you gave any insubordination to those over you, and you learn to speak with absolute reverence. Now, it may have been false, it may have been, because remember, the military struggles just as a family does, a Christian family does, or as a young man looking for a wife, trying to instill reverence in his wife and instill reverence in his children. Um, the military probably struggles with it too, because they're, they're getting all their... They have the opportunity called boot camp. We don't get to run our wives, our future wives, through boot camp. Might be a good idea. We could have a... Maybe I could do that. I could <laughs> <laughs> have my wife yelling at them out in the yard, and they could run sprints back and forth. They could scrub the bathrooms with toothbrushes. They could, you could break them, break their wills. Well, the arrogance, first thing against it, is avoiding the hypocrisy by setting the example of what it is to submit. Realize, like I said yesterday, that we are discovering we have certain areas of our life we need to be ruled. You do have overlords. You are not the perfect agent on the earth. You need help. You need God's help. You can't can you imagine if the city and its officers were not here to put out the fires and arrest the cop, arrest the criminals, and police the stop signs? It'd be like Mexico. Okay, it would be it would be a situation where we are um, um, we'd be in chaos. We have this nice grid pattern town, stop signs every so often. If everybody knew coasting through the California stops, whatever you're doing to skirt the law, but. You realize if you didn't have that to submit to, you could not replicate that order in your life. You need that order. You need to be paying taxes. Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, honor to whom honor is due. You have these things because you need them. You're just one man. You need a God. You need a government. You probably need somebody to create a business inside of which you work. Now, it may not, not always the case. You might have your own business. But, but most of us work for somebody else. We have all sorts of people that we depend on by them being in charge of our lives or a certain area of our lives. You have an ample opportunity to show reverence and to show what kind of man you are. What you expect is what you have to give. The second point regarding arrogance has to do with the emotion that is present in the hierarchy. The little martinet. Um, the martinet is a is a is a cliche um, officer, a cliched officer, a caricatured officer of the French military. Um, uh, I, his name was actually Martinet, and he was only like a corporal or something like that, and he functioned like a general. He lived his life in the French military like he was 
you know, uh, Napoleon. He wasn't. And so people, when they see people that think of themselves more highly than they ought to think, they have raised themselves up to function at a Father Abraham level when they're just, you know, a regular father. They, they actually do not understand hierarchies. When you encounter the hierarchs, when you encounter things that are above you, you know that you've encountered them. There's a thing called sublimity. Sublimity is the emotional response to height. Okay? I have the definition here from the Oxford English Dictionary. Higher lofty position, height, high dignity of office, vocation, or the like. That quality of external objects it, which awaken feelings of awe, reverence, lofty emotion, a sense of power, or the like. The state of emotion produced by the perception or contemplation of the sublime. Sublimity is when you have the emotional hit of hierarchy. Now, I'm an Anglophone. My wife and I went to England a number of years ago, got to go visit Buckingham Palace, and uh, I felt all touristy, had a camera, everything. And uh, uh, that, uh, um, uh, that opportunity to, to, to gaze on the palace, just there it is, that's where the queen lives. No, she's not my queen, but she's the queen. And you begin to realize this is, and this goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. This goes back to Alfred, king of Wessex. The, um, you have a sense of, of the greatness of monarchy. Or sometimes when you're out hiking or you, you, you come across a vista that just the majesty and the smallness of you. Did you guys read Douglas Adams? Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, Douglas Adams, uh, I, I keep referring to this one moment where Zephod Beeblebox gets put in the vortex of infinite perspective, which is supposed to drive you insane because it shows you how big you are in relationship to the universe. And the human ego can't take it, so they, they collapse into insanity. Well, Zephod comes out of it going, hey, I'm just as great as I thought I was. <laughs> which is funny because we know what it would do to us if you got shown how big you were. There's a great video on YouTube or someplace out there in the intertubes. Um, the, uh, uh, it was a couple of scientists did this. And all it is is a scrolling video. You can scroll. It starts at the size of you. You can scroll down to the smallest things known by science. And you can scroll up, coming in and out of the video, to the, the size of the universe. It's amazing with measurements on everything. So they show you everything from the toaster to Arcturus, and then constellations, and they're big, bigger, 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 and then down to the little parsing, whatever the smallest things are. I don't know what they're called. But it's amazing, it's amazing, you know. When we're in the presence of height, when the presence of height correctly, the contemplation of height produces the sublime emotive sense. We have a sense of majesty and a sense of awe. It is the emotion, probably the most apt emotion a man may have for God. You can say you love God, but you know it doesn't really fit any kind of loves that you really can express naturally. It doesn't, you, you really do love God, but 
you know that it's not quite good enough, or you sing that awful song in some modern churches, Heavenly Father, we appreciate you. Oh, you appreciate it. Great. Um, uh, glad to know you've met the living God. But sublimity is, it speaks to that. It speaks to the encounter, the epiphany of God. Now, it's not a... Consequently, there's a humility that stands. If you know height, you not only are being not hypocritical to avoid the arrogance, you know what that height's done to you. It has tenderized your soul a bit. I had a, the, the example I give here is a friend of mine. And this must have happened over a decade ago since it's been, probably been in this, uh, since the beginning of the Mojo Oracles. Um, it was Roger Boothman, and even though Roger Boothman, um, Pullman, he used to be a Pullman guy. Um, hot summer day, he was removing the roof of his house. That night, this thunderstorm rolled through that was just cataclysmic. And uh, he was on his roof in that storm, trying to tie down blue tarps with rope, with hurricane force winds, rain, lightning pounding the ground all around him, I'm assuming. And I was sitting on my front porch with a cigar, not watching him because he was in Poland, but I, I was, same storm, eight miles apart, I was on the porch going, wow, this is, this is sublime. He had no sense of sublimity. None. <laughs> you know, he was wrestling with the elements and he was going to die. That was, uh, that was about the, the extent of it. He was in the midst of the thing that was great and didn't feel it. I was watching it, having a chance to absorb it and felt it. Now, what, uh, <clears throat> what this meant to me, and it came up as an uh, illustration, is because the distinction, same storm, both Christians, both were looking directly at the storm. I was secure, he wasn't. That's it. When I face the terror of high things, because it's a terror, and I'm secured, I have the, 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 it's the security next to it that it allows me, you might say, the freedom of contemplation, the freedom of consideration of the height. Our, uh, our God, we were talking about a little bit this last night about how Christ condescended to be with us, how he took the form of a servant. Uh, one of the other aspects of uh, keeping arrogance from happening, you have freedom from hypocrisy, the golden rule, you have the sublime, and you have condescension. When you are high, you don't pull yourself away like you're, you know, the untouchable God. You're not some gentleman walking through a crowd of villains and you, and you, you, you just put your handkerchief to your nose so you don't smell their odor. You, you, you don't only shop at Neiman Marcus and never walk into Walmart. You, you, you don't have that kind of uh, uh, artificial protection of your height. Condescension, like Christ. Christ walked around on earth. Christ was a Jewish carpenter about 30 years old who lived in the first century and he was God. Okay? Now, can you imagine that's got to 
that's got to bend your mind a bit. You're, you're, you're 14 years old and you're not realizing, oh, I like girls. You're realizing, I'm God. And you're not crazy. And you know it for certain. Now, talk about struggling with arrogance. That might be a bit tempting. He was tempted in every manner like his way, yet without sin. He does not become arrogant. And he still knows he's God. And he wants other people to think he's God too. <laughs> you know, it's the, the, what if you were the greatest basketball player in history? No matter what, you could just walk on the court for a Vandal game or an NBA game, throw me the ball, you could just run circles around everybody, you know, dunk it to the elbow, no matter what, you could do anything they, when they handed you the ball. You, you, the team you were on could not lose. You were the greatest. And um, you also wanted everybody to know you were the greatest. It seems like a, almost a, you're writing yourself a, a, a blank check for unlimited arrogance. I mean, that's, that's what it sounds like. Jesus knew he was God and wanted other people to believe it too. But he wasn't arrogant. The condescension of Christ. Matter of fact, it tells us, I think it's in Romans 14. Yes, Romans 12. Romans 12, 16. Do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. You know what it says in that? It says, don't do this. Don't be lowly, it said. Associate with the lowly. So that when I have a um, time around a small child, I need to associate with them. When I'm around somebody, a blue-collar worker, or somebody who's not into C.S. Lewis and, and just as into working with her hands or something like that. That's, Lewis, as a matter of fact, was known for that. People would, he'd end up talk, talking to ditch diggers and stuff. He'd be out on the street, he'd be in the, you know, talking to tradesmen, various people, and they would never know they were talking to one of the better minds at Oxford or Cambridge because he was so interested in their life. I read an article by his chauffeur, guy, his driver, uh, that uh, drove him everywhere. Just a regular Joe, uh, salt of the earth type Englishman, you know, pint after work, that sort of thing. Well, this guy had some great insights to what Lewis was like, but it wasn't the high-flown Lewis. It was what a condescending Lewis would be. Now, we, we don't like the word condescension, not because it's not a great thing, because Jesus condescended. That means to come down to be with us. That's what condescension is, you descend with con. Now, you have a... Because we hate height, because our society is against anybody who is top lofty or refined, we, uh, we think that condescension is, is kind of a, a means that arrogance is played out. You don't want to uh, let that get a hold of you, because you do actually know that only, it only makes sense to you when you don't like this rich muckety-muck who plays polo and hangs out with, with people who play polo and has a yacht. And uh, you feel all thumbs when you're around them because they're very sophisticated, and you're not. And so you like to think less of them because they're, they, and if they're condescending at all, that's kind of grim. Think about some situations where you do think the person is high. Not where you're denying them that height. Not where you're saying, oh, I don't think they're really all that much. But somebody you think. 
like a, your favorite music star or somebody you think is really, really, really cool for whatever reason. If you happen to get down to the stage in the mosh pit, you're up flat up against the ball, and whoever it is, I don't know whoever it would be, for me it would be come on Clapton, something like that. And Clapton looks at me, middle of the song, points at me, reaches down, shakes my hand. I'm going to go home. Yeah, 57 year old man, never wash my hand again. You know, I'm not gonna, you know, I have been touched by Eric Clapton. Now, he was condescending. You see, Wayne's World, another classic of, of, uh, of modern mind. Wayne and Garth get backstage passes at an Alice Cooper concert. And they get in there, and Alice Cooper wants to talk to them about the origin of the name of Milwaukee, and, uh, and has just this regular conversation with them, and they are, we are not worthy, we are not worthy. <laughs> Condescension, when you believe in the greatness of the agent condescending, is a greater gain. It establishes their dignity, but it undoes their temptation areas. They are associating with the lowly. They're actually, they're not saying, oh, I'm really nothing, I'm going to hang out with the regular Joes, and all the regular Joes are going, okay, he really is just a regular Joe, we don't really think that much of him. You think that much more. When you actually do believe they're great, you think that much more when they condescend. If the Queen stops to talk to you, I have this picture in the library, one of their ex-Drones members, chatting with the Queen and the Archbishop of Canterbury. You know, he's the garden party with the Queen, and there he is. Someone took a picture, and you go, "Wow, what a, I remember that day! I remember that day, and I wasn't there. I just had the photo." I like the Queen. Always liked the Queen. Now, with that in mind, with that in mind, we have I, this next page or so. I'm not going to go through all this. Well, I want you to take time to read. These are all the authority verses, the hierarchical verses, Romans 13 on the government, um, Peter 2, uh, 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 Corinthians 11, on the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is her husband, the head of Christ is God. The Bible lays out what the hierarchy is supposed to look like. I'm suggesting to you that unless you believe in it and have the guards on it, to protect you from the sins or the foolishnesses that get you get into. In other words, assuming that you're the leader of all men everywhere and you're really not, or you, you think that people think highly of you and they don't, whatever the, the problems that attend you, you've got to believe in this notion. This is the only way these things are going to come to be part of your government, of your family life when you marry somebody. Um, it says here, like in uh, 1 Peter 2, the, um, chapter 3, where it says, Likewise, you wives, up near the top of the page, be submissive to your husbands, so that some, though they do not obey the word, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives when they see your reverent and chaste behavior. Because this is true. This is not just true. This is not an idea that is only for the men to learn. It's for the children to learn. The children to grow up in a situation. They don't learn it. You don't have to say, kids, you got to let's go through this. Uh, Mr. Wilson sent me this essay on hierarchy. Let's go through this, shall we? I know you're two, but we've got to start early. We're going to break this down into a shorter catechism, and you're going to chant back to me the notions of hierarchy. No, if they are surrounded by the hierarchical, they are... They take it in. It's osmotic. But Christian women have to learn it too. 
Just like Christian men have to learn it, Christian women, because the world has already trained them to be uppity. Here it says she could win a non-Christian husband to the Lord by reverent behavior. Now it's not her reverence piety-wise. It's not like, I'm off the prayer meeting again, honey. And he's sitting smoking a cigarette and drinking a keystone and you dumb religious woman. You know, he's not going to be one by her more regular attendance at services and her bringing home Bible tracts and laying them around the house, that kind of reverence. Her reverence is of her husband. That's why it says later in the passage, so once, verse 5, holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves and were submissive to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are now her children if you do right and let nothing terrify you. Now what's remarkable about that, Peter has one verse in which Sarah calls her husband Lord. It's when that moment where she laughs and God comes and tells them that they're going to have the child of the promise and she laughs to herself in the tent. She says to her, shall, shall um, my husband is old or something like that. She just refers to him. She doesn't go. It's not a situation where she walks up to Abraham and goes, my Lord. It's a situation where she just refers to him, to herself. She's not talking to anybody. She's just thinking. It's her way of referring to him. It's her opinion. Now, the Lord caught her on the laughter. But Peter is referring to that passage. She obeys her husband, and she refers to him that way. You want to be in a situation where your wife and your children have at least a hope of regaining the notions that removes, you might say, the unnecessary rebellion, the unnecessary conflict. Because conflict, you know, even if you have the right notions, you will have situations where real criminal minds or real sinful people will still rebel against their overlords. But at least then, you'll just be trying to crush really rebellious people, not fools, who just took the wrong notion about life because the whole world was training them to think like an enlightenment mind. That, you're, that We trained them to think they were equal, and we slapped them when they act like they were equal. That's got to confuse. So when you were, we're trying to remove, so that when you marry someone who has believed the gospel, desires to please God, and knows where truth comes from, sure, she might have some moments where she's feeling her oats, or she's about to hit her monthly cycle, and uh, you want to track that. Um, and you, um, and you're, 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 you're going to remove a huge amount, because you can appeal to them on the basis of this truth. They have believed that this is true. They may be tempted like we're tempted to be unfaithful to our God in circumstances, but at least you'll have a common element of agreement that the hierarchy that God instilled, when it says all the way back to the creation, I don't have the passage here in the text, your desire is for your husband, and he shall rule over you, was part of the curse to the woman. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. From six to... 4,000 B.C., where it was, 3956, whatever year. Now, when we uh, get to, and I, think, look at these, these are just some. I mean, the, the Bible is replete with uh, 
passages that refer to these things either in narrative or whatever. You have St. Paul taking back his insult to the high priest when he realized he was the high priest. So I did not know. You should not speak ill of a ruler of your people. That's in Acts. Um, you get it when, when David has a couple chances to kill Saul. And he says, I shall not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. The guy was trying to kill him. Anybody would have done it. We all would have done it. You know, we were, we were barbarians. We're used to killing people. We snuck up on the guy who was trying to kill you. Of course you kill him. Not David. He would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. You see, you get a lot of this in the scripture. You say, where am I? Where am I? What feeling is this and what notion is this? Now, Lewis, I have this one more uh, quote from Lewis uh, uh, on the nature of the psalm. And it, it's not really, a, it's taking, this is also out of preface to Paradise Lost. Um, he's making an argument on one of the things that should not happen. Just like the hierarchy that is free of arrogance, that understands the sublimity, understands the sublimity, and condescends becomes a very enjoyable, for the people under a very enjoyable hierarchy. So you're not trying to design yourself into some staff sergeant. You're not trying to design yourself into um, just Mr. Bossy Pants in some sort of way. You're trying to design yourself into a person who has understood the nature of this beast. Solemnity, which Lewis talks about here, is part of that. The things that get higher are solemn. But he says, in the old sense, solemn, not what we think of solemn, which is kind of a funeral. Go to a funeral, maybe we'll be solemn. Walk into a church, supposed to be solemn. Don't run in here. I told it as a child, don't run in here. It's the house of God. You know, you got to be solemn because it's the church. In the old sense, with the mind that had this hierarchical notion, the higher you went, the more solemn. Yes, it became, but it was a joyous thing. He says... Um, here midway through the court. To recover it, you must think of a court ball or a coronation or a victory march as these things appear to people who enjoy them. In an age where everyone puts on his oldest clothes to be happy in, you must reawake the simpler state of mind in which people put on gold and scarlet to be happy in. Above all, you must be rid of that hideous idea, fruit of a widespread inferiority complex, that pomp, on the proper occasions, has any connection with vanity or self-conceit. The celebrant approaching the altar, a princess being led out by a king to dance a minuet, a general officer on a ceremonial parade, a major domo preceding the boar's head of the Christmas feast. All these wear unusual clothes and move with calculated dignity. This does not mean that they are vain, but that they are obedient. They are obeying the hoc age which presides over every solemnity. The modern habit of doing ceremonial things unceremoniously is no proof of humility. Rather, it proves the offender's inability to forget himself in the right and his readiness to spoil for everyone else the proper pleasure of ritual. The solemnity, the, 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 this, this glorious thing, so that when you look up, you're looking into heaven as I look up. Lewis also says, uh, well, I, won't, I don't want to get sidetracked. I'm going to suggest to you, I, I, obviously I've been referring to Preface to Paradise Lost. This is the short book. Okay, this is my copy. You may not have it. Um, it's mostly about the textual criticism regarding Paradise Lost. There is a chapter on hierarchy in it. 
if you get a chance to get a look at a copy, read the read that chapter. Um, if you have another, if you're a, 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 a mind that is go, this is interesting. Lewis analyzes, this is what he calls a grammar of that ancient world. It's called the discarded image. The image he is talking about that is discarded is what we've been talking about. The idea of, of a vertical universe where it didn't say that the star Sirius was nine light years away. They thought Sirius was nine light years up. Okay? The big difference. And that the medieval mind and the ancient mind, he goes from the ancients all the way through the Middle Ages, and he analyzes the nature of their world. And you can tell that Lewis probably doesn't believe what they thought, but he believes in the idea that underpinned it. That's why his books reflect hierarchy. Narnia, the trilogy, other things, all push this idea forward. That's why this conversation between Jane and Ransom. Um, because he was pushing this notion of a vertical universe, not a horizontal one. We are not apart from each other, different. We are higher and lower. Everybody has a dignity that they exist at. And the dignity, we'll cover this tomorrow, the idea of the uh, honor is the, the respect that is due your dignity. So if you get a chance, discard a damage. It's a little tougher going, it's a, but if you're interested in the subject, it's Lewis's um, layout of that world. Um, you have all these opportunities. I have a few quotes here on this last page about honor. You honor God. You honor your father and your mother. You honor the old guy. I'm the old guy. Um, honor to whom honor is due. All these different things. Outdo one another in showing honor. These are all references. Honor is a reference to an upper, up and down dignity placement. Up and down, not just difference, not just a blue ribbon for everybody at the fair. It's, some guys get the premium ribbon. Some people get no ribbon at all. We should study these things. I have this Philippians quote, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So an instruction to actually not only discover the idea, but have it co-opt at least a good deal of your thought. If you have the chance, now there's some people, um, nothing is worse than showing up at the Renaissance Fair and seeing a bunch of creative anachronists hitting each other with foam swords, <laughs> uh, thinking they're Conan. <laughs> and that their somewhat dumpy girlfriend is Arwen, or Eowyn, <laughs> and they, of course, in their dumpy, skin-tight spandex as Aragorn, or Boromir. They think they are something. You don't want to have those that represent the idea of courtliness. Oh, there's a pain going around. I hope none of your sisters have this, or people you know. But it's awful. It's a knight kneeling in front of a woman, a damsel, kneeling in front of a woman, and she's, she's touching a sword to his shoulder. He just want to run that sword through somebody, maybe not her, but, but the, you say, well, isn't it? No, we're not creative anachronists. We're not just dreaming of castles in the sky where damsels are the lords of your life. They're not. With this hierarchy thing is the other way. 
the women sit by and watch men lead the show. Women do the things. Women revere the men, not vice versa. We bestow honor on them as the weaker vessel, it says in, in, in Peter, but in terms of we don't want to grab hold of something and live in a world of our fairy tale storybook idea. Um, we, if we believe what we're doing, we, we start to, and we guard our souls against the sins that are attended to it, against arrogance, and we, we measure out these things. We become a governor that is actually ruling a wife or children from above, that is acknowledged from above, and it doesn't have the arrogance and the top loftiness and the insulting attitude that so many people who get put in a, in a leadership position immediately get. Um, it's, it's, it's a dangerous power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We know that. But these are the, this is the order God has given us. This is the way God wants our marriages and our relationships to run. So we've got to get in there and take that power without being um, tripped up by it. You will, uh, you will also learn to benefit those who are better than you. You become a good citizen. You become a good governor and become a good citizen. You're an addition to whatever situation you live in because you, you know what it is to be honored and you know how it is to honor. You've studied it. And if you avoid the creative anachronist society, you won't be a dork. So that's, uh, those are the, all the plus sides of these things. Um, that is, oh golly, an hour and 20 minutes. Tomorrow, we're going to look at the application of this on these qualities that come in on noblesse oblige and the establishment of what's called magnanimity, um, again, tied into our relationships. And then on Thursday, we will actually get down to the mojo, where we're talking about what it is that moves us and what it is that moves them, you know, girls.